0: Greetings listeners and listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, government, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to regional national and international affairs even galactic stuff once in a while Ac- absolutely i
1: noticed the emphasis on crime so we'll have to crime. Wait, see what you're doing there, there's a I hint don't. there there's a hint okay
0: november 7th a monday evening at 7 p.m right the jewish book festival what? where there will be a discussion by charles bosworth and our guest joel schwartz on the book they wrote bone deep untangling the betsy faria murder case mm. and joel's on the line he's an attorney and author He is with the Rosenblum, Schwartz, and Fry firm here in St. Louis. Joel, welcome to St. Louis In Tune. Thanks, guys, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Wow. This particular case is something that I liken to the O.J. Simpson case, that it grabbed national attention. It was here locally. It wasn't put on the television like the O.J. case, but it really grew and almost had a life of its own. And then when you wrote the book with Charles, This thing developed into the mini-series that was on and the program. Did you ever imagine that things would get that big with this?
2: That question has come up in some of my speaking engagements. And when I run through the things that had to have happened, including Pam Up killing three people, it would sound crazy. Had I told you back in 2011 that we would be here talking about this over 10 years later, and that Russ would have been convicted based upon something where there was no evidence and it would have gotten overturned on a motion that had been granted twice in the history of the state, that Tam Huck not only killed Betsy Faria but would have gone on to kill her mother and then attempt to frame Russ again and kill somebody else. Mm. And then there would have been 30 million people listening to a podcast turned into a book in a TV series because so they looked at me like I was out of my mind and had me hospitalized. <laughs>
0: wow. And I know you've, when you were a youngster. You wanted to be an actor. And and this is finally, as we talked off the air, this is finally, you're getting that Hollywood kind of acting, although somebody else is playing you.
2: Persevere, Arnold. uh, (laughs) I took the long 35-year road to get there. However, I was actually in the series. I played a bartender in the second episode. That was fun.
1: Yeah. It's
2: a little cameo for you. You're you're doing an Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I got to meet everybody with, unfortunately, the exception of Renee Zellweger. Hmm. But uh, I got to hang out with Josh a few times, and he and I keep in contact. And Judy Greer, it was kind of her scene. She's the one who played the prosecutor, Leah Askey, and she was absolutely wonderful. So I had a wonderful experience doing this.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your background, and then we'll delve into the book a little bit and the storyline, because some people may not have paid attention to that, although I don't know how in St. Louis you couldn't pay attention to that. One particular channel, Channel 2, KTVI did a—Fox 2 did a wonderful job with that, and one specific reporter who I think really helped break the case, if I'm recalling correctly. But you went to the University of Texas, Austin, and also got your law degree there. Why Texas?
2: Well, honestly, I started out at UCLA and I couldn't afford to stay there. And the University of Texas, while being a great town and a great school, was the most affordable school I could find in the country. And I loved it so much, I applied to the law school and ended up sticking around. And Austin back in the 80s was absolutely a magnificent place to live with the climate, the attitude and everything that was going on there. So I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Austin.
0: And you came back to St. Louis. You're a St. Louis native. And I know where you went to high school. I won't ask you. Uh,
1: where did you go to high school, Joel? Well, I'll ask you. We'll I,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I got
1: to
2: ask Joel. Uh, where'd you go? <laughs> I went to Ladue. I graduated there in 1980. Oh. Uh, I did take a circuitous route back to St. Louis. After I graduated law school, I took the bar just because I thought maybe I should. <laughs> And I immediately left the next day, and I went back to Los—I went out to Los Angeles, where I essentially waited tables for about the next year and a half to two years, wow. attempting to become an actor. Really, with a law degree?
0: Wow! Oh yeah! Oh man! And the decision to get back into the legal profession, or to really implement your degree—he was starving. How did <laughs> Yeah, starving—not a starving artist, a starving <laughs> lawyer. Lawyer.
2: I was a starving waiter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right. (laughs) Things were going okay for me out there. And there was a prolonged writer's strike back in 1989. It went on for months and months. And at some point after about three or four months, maybe even longer, I kind of looked inward and I thought to myself, Joel, you're a lawyer out here. You're not an aspiring actor because there's nothing going on. You're not going on any auditions. So I decided instead of just being a waiter, I didn't decide to move back here. I chose to come back and visit my family for a couple of weeks and just relax. And while in St. Louis, I was out to dinner and ran into a friend of mine who had also graduated from Duke. He was a little bit older and he was in the middle of a murder trial and he invited me to come and watch his trial, which I did. And that enthralled me. And at the time, the public defender's office in St. Louis had been reorganizing. So he contacted the person in charge, and I went down for an interview, not thinking anything of it, but no harm. Anyway, I went down. There was about 20 people in the room. They interviewed me, and they asked me if I could start tomorrow. And it was, <laughs> I hadn't been anticipating any of that. And it was, uh, forgive me. I, I don't even live here. I live in Los Angeles. Give me a few days, and I will call you and let you know. And I decided, you know, instead of waiting tables, I'll go practice law. It seems like something I would enjoy, something I might Do well at, and I decided to give it a year. So here I am, thirty. That was nineteen eighty nine. So thirty three years later, I'm still here, still doing it, and still enjoying it.
0: That's really important because sometimes it could, you know, wear on you, or uh, my words get boring, or lose interest. Uh And there, there are similarities. I know there's tons of lawyer jokes out there. I'm not telling any. Okay, but (laughs) there's. There are similarities between being a trial lawyer, I'm guessing, especially in a criminal trial, and an actor because you're you're presenting things.
2: Yeah, you are doing it without a script, and it is obviously the stakes are much higher if you're no good. Right. Uh, And that's sort of how I played it out in my mind, and I did continue. When I first moved back, I continued. I probably did about eight to 10 local community theater shows, and I continued. I had written, at that point in time, I came back and I wrote two screenplays, and I sent them out to people I knew in L.A., and I'd have to see what, you know, keep a toe back in that world. But I'm, it is always interesting. It's never, ever boring. There are days that I'm not in love with, but overall, it's exciting, it's different, and it actually does mean something.
0: It means a lot, especially to Russ Faria, and it is Faria or is it Ferrara? You know, you have it right there. It
2: is Maria with an F,
0: Faria. Faria, okay. And as I started to read the book, and as I remember listening back to this particular that happened and what was being reported, it was what was going on, what the police were reporting, et cetera. But as I'm reading in the book, what is law enforcement and then the judicial side and then juries, what are they thinking? Because this looked like a big railroad job. So delve into this get, a little bit. I don't want to give the book away, but delve into that a little bit.
2: I'm asked that question every speaking engagement I do, and I don't have an answer. I, it was so evident on its face that Russ could not have committed this crime. Yet the police not only pursued him when it was virtually impossible, if not impossible, for him to have pulled it off. It was an incredibly viable suspect who had been with Betsy Faria, was the last one with her, lied about the whereabouts. lied about why she was with her, lied about how long she was with her, and that was all provable, and had, under suspicious circumstances, had Betsy Faria's life insurance proceeds designated to her merely four days before. Mm. And the fact that the police chose not to look at her at all Simply defied logic. Now, I, I talk about it in the, this in the book, but once I got involved, I knew I was certain I would go speak with this relatively new and experienced young prosecutor and lay it all out, and we'd be done. This thing would be wrapped up in a month to six weeks. I couldn't have been more wrong. Not only did she dig her heels in, she filed these ridiculous motions with the court to keep out any mention of that other person. And the person I'm referring to is Pam Hubb, that most of your listeners probably have heard of. Right. Um, so these ridiculous rulings would come down, and each time it would happen, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I'd go back and I'd talk to my partners, other judges, and I started getting so outrageous in court with my motions and the things I would say. I, I thought at some point she was something going to hold me in contempt and lock me up. Never happened, but her rulings, she continued to sustain them. And that was the cause for this overturning that had been so rarely done in the state of Missouri. I, in the state of Missouri, the cases that I looked at that had been overturned on murders, it averaged generally the people who were confined. It was generally 10 to 14 years. Wow. In Russ Freya's case, not only was it overturned much quicker, but we were actually in our second trial in less than two years after the first trial. Good,
0: great. And had he gone to prison at the time? Was he- oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, he had spent quite a bit of time locked up locally and then went to prison, what they call behind the wall, because he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And he spent a total of about three and a half years behind bars.
0: Now, I guess I don't blame juries because they only get the evidence to a degree what the prosecution gives them. But obviously, you're a defense attorney. You provide the other defense. And you couldn't mention Pam, Pam Hupp's name at all? That's crazy.
2: No, that's not accurate. I could mention her name, but merely that she dropped her wrong. I couldn't get into the fact that she got the insurance proceeds. I couldn't get into, in the legal terms, what's called prior inconsistent statements because of uh, this ruling that the court had handed down regarding what's called an alternate suspect. So I did get into all of those things, but every time I did, the jury had to be removed from the room and they heard nothing of it. The entire courtroom heard all of it. And I was told that some of the people in the courtroom contacted the jurors right afterwards and told them they just convicted a clearly innocent man. Now, Mark, you had said, I think it was you, Mark, that you don't necessarily blame the jury because they didn't get to hear all the information regarding Pam Hub, And that is accurate. However, what they also didn't hear was any evidence whatsoever, credible evidence, tying Westphalia to the murder yet they still convicted them, which is something that I, to this day, still do not understand.
0: Which kind of leads me to this question. I've lived out in St. Charles County, out in western St. Charles County, and for probably 20 years, and no Troy fairly well, Lincoln County. And at the time, it was more rural than it is now. Oh, yeah. uh, it's more suburban right now. Yeah. But was there a Lincoln County rural sentiment versus a St. Louis city attorney coming out to kind of tell us how we're supposed to do things. Did you ever feel that out there? Well, it was stated explicitly, not by the jurors,
2: but by the state, the prosecuting attorney, a big city lawyer coming out here, thinks he's going to bully us. And we showed him. I don't know that there was that with the jury. But what I was told afterwards was, especially in those days, this is, again, over 10 years ago, everybody sort of knows everybody. And so while the jurors indicated that they didn't know Leah asking personally, some of them had said afterwards, they all knew her family, and if she felt that Russ Faria did this well, there must be something there, and he must have done it, which is certainly not a reason to convict anybody, and it's frankly frightening that these things can go on in some, as close to a city of St. Louis, besides the St. Charles or St. Louis, a place like Troy, Missouri. It's frightening. Russ Faria was a guy, he worked full-time, he had a good job, everything the right way, and it was simply impossible based on the facts for him to have done it. He had a jury still convicted him.
0: Now, couldn't a judge in a circuit court like that, if the jury came back with a decision that was like, no, you guys totally messed this up, This is I'm going to set that verdict aside because this is really what should have happened, could the judge do that? And I know— Again, like you said, judges and prosecutors in a small town in a county like Lincoln County at the time, everybody knows each other. Were they able to do that or was it just like the good old boy, good old girl's kind of syndrome?
2: I asked the judge to do that. What you're referring to is called JNOV, a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. So this judge could certainly have done that had she chosen to, but she was part of the problem. She's the judge who allowed the state to get away with what they did. And I filed a multiple page motion as to everything that had been done wrong. And that's what you need to do to preserve things for the court of appeals. The judge hadn't even ruled on that prior to sentencing and didn't know that she needed to rule on that prior to sentencing for the sentence to be valid. Ultimately, she was informed of that. She ruled on it, denying it. And that was the basis for what the court of appeals utilized to overturn this case in such a rapid fashion.
0: Okay, we are talking to Joel Schwartz. He's an attorney and author of the book Bone Deep Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. It's going to be uh, an evening at 7 p.m. on November 7th at the Jewish Book Festival. And we're going to come back and talk more about that Court of Appeals decision and also want to get into why the Major Case Squad had some issues with this. This is Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston of St. Louis In Tune. We'll be right back. At St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you
1: informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues, and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis Intune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis Intune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, well, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the US, and of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website again is stlintune.com. Visit us today, that's stlintune.com.
0: Welcome back to St. Louis Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're having a conversation with Joel Schwartz. He's attorney and author of the book, Bone Deep Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. There will be an author discussion with Charles Bosworth, who's a co-author, with Joel, on the book at the Jewish Book Festival on Monday, November 7th at 7 p.m. And just FYI, Joel is with the Rosenblum, Schwartz, and Fry firm. He spent 30 years exclusively as a criminal defense lawyer in the St. Louis region, has appeared on Dateline, NBC, 60 Minutes, CBS Morning News, CNN, Fox News, and countless local television news affiliates, all because of this particular case. And it's the... Russ Faria case where he supposedly had murdered his wife, Betsy, but ultimately it was Pam Hupp. And if you've seen any television recently in the year of 2022, you know that it's a wild thing. But this book, folks, you've got to get this book. It's wonderful. It's very intriguing. I'm probably about a little more than two-thirds of the way through, and it's just great. Joel, how did you come about trying to do this book like this?
2: The popularity of the story uh, sort of emanated from Dateline. We hold the record Dateline appearances previously held by the O.J. Simpson and the John Benet Ramsey case. And once it got publicized, I was contacted by screenwriters, by book writers, everybody, you name it, from all over the country. And nothing really set in. And then one day, I think it was an email or maybe a phone call from Charlie. I didn't know him at the time. He... It just sounded sincere, sounded honest. He was local. And I said, Come on, let's have lunch. So I think with the next day, he came out. We had lunch. And then within the course of the next several days, we had an agreement put together and we started writing. And it was quite a, an interesting and fun process. And I think the result, I don't want to spoil the story for you, but I think the result speaks for itself. Many people who read the early editions, whose judgment I trust, would say, Joel, I, frankly, 50 pages, 100 pages in. If this was fiction, I would have put it down because it's simply unbelievable. But the fact that it is nonfiction and true is just enthralling and interesting. And most people will say to me, it reads like a mystery novel. And it's something that people have picked up to read Friday night and they read it all the way through it without ever resting. And that to me is the best
0: compliment I can get. You, you are exactly right. right. It is hard to put down. And yeah. you can't make this stuff up. If somebody said that this was a made-up story, it's like, no, no way. And I think one of the things that intrigues me is you go right into, you had access to the dialogue and to the interviews, and you talk about that, you quote that, you have that. And it's, that lays things out, and you've, you're laying the story out very, very well. So how does the major case squad, which I've always had really high respect for, because mm-hmm. they seem to really come down on things very accurately. How did they yeah. miss the mark on this one?
2: I can't give you a valid reason, because if I could, I, I still have never been able to wrap my head around the interviews that were done with Pam Hubb. For example, and I talk about it in the book, and I also will be talking about it at the Jewish Book Festival on the 7th. They go to her and they ask her, for instance, when she dropped Betsy off, if she ever went in the house. She says, no, I, I didn't. I dropped her off and I left. And this is all recorded. Well, within minutes, her story changed to she went in the house and she didn't just drop her off and she was inside for 20 to 30 minutes. There's, for example, a phone call from Pam to Betsy that evening. Well, based upon the First responder's testimony of the condition of the of Betsy's body, it would have appeared that from the time they got there, which was about ten to ten or nine fifty, the body had been in that condition for about two and a half hours, so seven twenty. Well we know based upon her cell site and that phone call that Pam was at the house at that one time, yet she told the police officers that she called Betsy at seven twenty seven to tell her she was home, to let Betsy know she was home safe. Well, that would have been impossible based upon knowing where she had previously admitted to being when she made her initial call when she arrived at the house. Well, the fact that these were not, that a long belt didn't go off for the major police squad to determine why the woman who got the insurance money was lying about her whereabouts and everything she had done, that anything, it still defies any logic that I can come up with. boggling. They got it. And you're right. They generally hit the mark and they generally get it right. On this one, they couldn't have been more long.
0: Was that because the lead investigator or the person who was leading was from, like, the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department and organized it and pushed it that direction?
2: They clearly pushed it that direction. What had happened is Russ, when he got home, saw Betsy laying there in a pool of blood. She had a knife in her neck and her wrist was slashed. Russ immediately jumped to... The clearly wrong conclusion that his wife Betsy had committed suicide, and that, and he called that in on nine one one. He said, "My wife killed herself." So they took that along with the fact that he got a spouse dead. The husband always the one who did it, or the what So that is really where this whole thing started. And then they developed tunnel vision, and then they developed a bias that they never could be shaping from the fact that he called it in made sense given the information he had. She had been a, she had suffered from depression, had attempted suicide in the past, and going so far as to be involuntarily hospitalized by a traffic cop for running a stop sign some two years earlier, she had been, just been diagnosed with a terminal illness. So everything made sense to Russ. They simply didn't delve far enough into their inquisition to understand where his head had at and why he said those things. But what ultimately became was that was their initial case. And I've done a bunch of research on it. And this thing called confirmation bias is so incredibly strong in nature is we just want to be right. And throughout this entire thing, they just wanted to be right. And they would confirm the facts and ignore the facts that disproved anything that would make them right. Wow. And that's how we ended up here.
0: Now, that leads me to an interesting question that's more for your perspective on Has this case done anything to change the judicial system or law enforcement into looking at this confirmation bias and being aware that out there?
2: No, it hasn't, unfortunately. It will change a few things. You know, I speak to law students. I speak to a lot of people. A lot of people read the book and they understand the traps that await them if they make a mistake. And as the book and again, not to spoil things, but there was a significant recovery on a civil suit against these officers by what we filed on behalf of us. Um, so you'd like to think that these officers, and these won't make a mistake again, but the prosecutor's not around, nor is the judge. They got summarily destroyed, voted out of all by a huge margin. I just, over time, I think once things like this are publicized, you'd like people to become educated. You want law students to become educated. You want general public who serve on juries to become educated so they can understand that these things do in fact happen before i started practicing if you would have told me something like this goes on and you would have told me police officers sometimes lied sometimes routinely lie i would have looked at you like you're crazy and said, "What? that doesn't make any sense why would they do that well we're all human and Everybody has their horribles, and that confirmation bias that I just spoke of is so unbelievably powerful that a police officer, a human being, wants to be right. Hopefully, over time, things will become a better system. But right now, this is the best system in the world, and if I had suggestions to change it, I would. The problem is we're human and we have frailties.
0: Now, let's delve into a little bit about the Court of Appeals. Obviously, Russ went to prison. You were filing some appeals, and it was finally going to be heard. And how long did that process take, and were those justices, did they understand exactly what had happened immediately, or did that take a little bit of time?
2: I can't necessarily answer that, although I can tell you how it came down, which seems to indicate to me the justices were aware of the entire situation, probably through the media as well as my filings. I had filed my appeal, which was a very long, gone out thing. And then the state had replied and the court hadn't ruled on the appeal yet. But then I got this new information regarding Pam Hop, And the only way to supplement my motion was something called a Mooney motion. I had never heard of it, nor had any attorneys I'd ever come across. But a woman in my office by the name of Hannah, who was handling appeals with me, she had come across this. And we figured, let's get this in front of the court of appeals. And it seemed like a matter of a week or two. The Chief Justice, Angela Quigless, issued an order without a response from the state, which I've never heard of. I've certainly never seen it, and I've never heard of it anywhere in the country. You could read between the lines and her order. It almost seemed as if her ears were fuming and smoke was coming out of them in this order. it It was almost as if she was furious. Anyway, she sent the case back to be heard, a motion for a new trial. And fortunately for that time, the original judge recused herself, meaning she took herself off the case, and we ended up with an experienced judge named Steve Ulmer oh. from St. Louis City. So the, And we were then at the motion for the new
1: trial granted. So the original judge was going to be put back on the
2: case? Is that right? That's how it generally works. Oh. I don't know the reason why this judge recused herself, but if there was some information in my motion for new trial that I believe put her in a bit of a compromising position. So that may have been why she withdrew from the case, or it simply may have been she realized what a poor job she did and how in over she, her head she was. The incredible part of that story is I ended up choosing to go with simply a tried case. They call it a bench trial in the second trial. And throughout the course of the trial, the first judge sat there in the courtroom, in the jury box, watching the entire thing. Wow. And at one point I was cross-examining one of the police officers and I heard her say out loud under her breath, I have serious problems with this case. A lot of this stuff didn't come in, in the first trial. I stopped my cross-examination. I bent over and I was probably two inches from her face. I said, did you just say what I thought you said? You heard every single one of these factors. The reason it didn't come in is because of you and you alone. And she looked at me like when you catch your kid and with her hand in a cookie jar or something. (laughs) She didn't say a word. And then we've never spoken since.
0: Wow. I think I'd have much to say. Was the same prosecuting (laughs) attorney prosecuting that case? Same prosecuting attorney.
2: And we haven't spoken since this has happened either. However, she's now done a couple of interviews. And frankly, she's doubled down in saying Russ Faria did it. And as I think we all know, and it's in the book, things have changed up in Lincoln County. We have a very, very qualified prosecutor who has now filed murder charges and asking for the death penalty. And the defendant's name is Pam Hulk
0: Yeah, she seems to be empowered after this. And I would call her a very amateurish kind of person in trying to pull off this situation that she did. She wasn't even slick about doing some of this stuff and then contradicting herself. But then the th- situation comes out about her mother, the situation where she gets this other person and ends up murdering him because she wanted to I, get back to Russ or something, that Russ had actually killed him. And I don't understand this mindset. I, do you have any kind of insight into what's going on with her? That head. That's a huge, again, that killer's mind. But
2: She was it was so amateurish and I'll give you two stories quickly. As I was reviewing the discovery, my son Jonah was twelve years old at the time. He sat down and spent about thirty or forty-five minutes reading through the paperwork and he looked up at me like it was a encyclopedia brown story. They said, Dad, I know who did it. Do you want to know? I said, Yeah, sure. (laughs) It was that woman, Pam Hump. Which goes back to your question is how did the major case squad miss this? When a 12-year-old could read it for 30 minutes and tell me that's who it is. Now, on that third murder, Lewis Gumpenberger, what had occurred is after the first trial, Pam had testified under oath outside the hearing of the jury and what I referred to earlier, that offer of proof, that she had set up a trust for Betsy and Russ's children to get the insurance persons. That, in fact, had been true, and she put $100,000 in that trust. However, it was a revocable trust, and a week after trial, she revoked it and took all the money out. The important fact here is, though, the murder happened in December 2011, and the first trial was in November 2013. She set up the trust the week before the trial and volunteered to me, would you like to know why it took me so long to set up the trust? And I said, of course, but why did it take you so long to set up the trust? And her answer was that my mother had been sick with Alzheimer's, and she recently died, and I had been taking care of her. I had no information at that point in time as to how her mother died, why she died. But after that trial ended, I got numerous calls saying, that line, blankety-blank, her mother did not die of Alzheimer's. Her mother fell from the third floor about of her community, and Pam was the last one with her, and Pam inherited money from her. Oh. So... After the second trial concluded and Russ was acquitted, I called the U.S. attorney, Rich Callahan, at the time, and I said, Rich, somebody needs to do something about this woman. And no one else has jurisdiction because this prosecutor here won't do anything. You guys need to take a look at it. So what happened is the U.S. attorney's office did begin to do their job. They contacted Leah Askey, the prosecutor in Troy, asked for the discovery. And somehow, and I've been told various ways, but somehow word got back to Pam Hupp. And she got desperate. And she then went and attempted to deflect blame once again. And she tried to frame Russ Faria for a second time. Unfortunately for her, she didn't do that in Lincoln County. She did it in O'Fallon, which is in St. Charles County, and was not able to get away with anything. And this was as amateurish as the killing of Betsy Faria.
0: Now, I know there's always... Go ahead. I shudder
2: to think of what would have happened If she had chose to kill somebody in Lincoln County with the same prosecutor and the same police on the job. No kidding. No kidding. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's scary. Wild. It is wrong. (laughs) Scary is is the word that that can happen like that. Yeah. Justice is supposed to be blind to be able to render a good decision. But the fact that it's a setup like that. And what was so special about Pam Huff where you don't want to get to the bottom of the truth, you know? Was she really making their jobs easy, wasn't she, Joel?
2: she made their job so easy; it was plain as day that she did it. And when you say justice is supposed to be blind, in this case, it wasn't blind, but it was deaf and dumb. Oh yeah, it couldn't have been any worse. I, I don't. I, I looked for the connection between the prosecutor and Pam Huff, right. between the and Pam Hubb, between the judge and the prosecutor, and other than the connections that are out there, I couldn't find anything mm. that would cause anyone to do what they did. Fascinating, because I thought I, the same
1: thing, Joel. I thought there has to be a connection, a family connection or something, and they didn't refuse themselves from the process. It's amazing to me that they, it went
0: the way it did.
2: I'm not saying that there isn't a connection, but there was not a connection that meant anything that I could find. hmm Got it. Wow.
0: Well, the reporter from Channel 2, his name escapes me right now, was he helpful in this I know sometimes reporters can be I'm antagonistic just... in legal kinds of things, especially in murder cases, no matter which side you're on. But was it seemed that my understanding is that he really kept us alive.
2: Well, his name was Chris Hayes, and Chris Hayes couldn't have been more wonderful. Uh, huh. He did his job, he did it well. And the story goes, this: the first trial happened to be during TV Sweeps Week. and he had come to me. He'd heard about the case. We had talked about it. And initially it sort of sling, seemed like a slam dunk for the prosecution. Well, I kind of told him what was going on and he became intrigued and he wanted to cover the case. And because it was Sweep's Week, he was the only one. He went to his producers. His producers said something along the lines of, some guy kills his, stabs his wife in Lincoln County. Who cares? And um, nobody in St. Louis is really going to care about that at all. Chris fortunately stuck at his guns. He covered the story, gavel to gavel. He sat through the entire trial. He then recruited Robert Patrick from the Post. And they ended up doing a special on Channel 2, ended up winning a local Emmy Award for that, and Chris stuck on the case. The only thing that I regret about it is because of the rivalries between TV networks he was not allowed to appear on any of the Datelines and get credit for all the work he did mm. because NBC produced the miniseries. They used a conglomeration of other people to create what he did. His name was not included, none of that. And he did not get anywhere near the credit that Chris deserved because mm. he was... It, as far as breaking the story for a reporter, nobody could have done it any better than he He was on
0: it and he still Covers any developments in the Pam Hub case now. Wow! So, is there a sequel that's going to happen after this? We don't know yet.
2: Pam Hub will probably go to trial in '24. Would be my guess. Maybe even longer because of the intricacies involved in the Death Valley case. I know there is things going on regarding the investigation that I can't get into. So, things will take a while. As far as the sequel. I keep in communication. As a matter of fact, I was texting with Josh Dumel last night. He texted me that they were nominated for People's Choice Award for The Thing About Pam, yeah. which for your listeners that don't know, that's the name of the TV series. So we communicate and the there is an incredibly loyal base that watches the show. Hopefully, many of those people have purchased or will purchase the book Bone Deep. Uh, and, and Charles Bosworth and I are talking about various follow-ups, and we'll see. It remains to be seen.
0: Why the name Bone Deep? Was that how the knife got in, oh. Bone Deep?
2: That is, yes, that is exactly what it is. It was not a name that we came up with. However, the publisher came back with another name that we really hated, and then they came back with the, nook, the name Bone Deep, and I had some issues with it, to be honest. As a first-time author, as you you, you learn in this business, you have very little clout. The publisher liked it and had their reasons, but the knife was rendered bone deep. The cut on the wrist was certainly bone deep, and the conspiracy was very deep. Mm. So uh, that was their reasons, and it seems to have worked because the book sales and the audio and the Kindle sales have been wonderful and
0: hopefully continue to be. And folks, you need to get to the Jewish Book Festival and listen to Charles Bosworth and Joel Schwartz, who's been our guest, to talk about the book Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. That's Monday, November 7th at 7 p.m. There will be an author discussion. You can just look up by uh, the Jewish Book Festival, and you can get some tickets for that. That will be wonderful. And also, folks, you got to get this book. It is a riveting book. You really can't put it down, just like Joel was stating. Joel, I'll give you some final words about 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 how this has changed you or made you stop and reflect?
2: It just is one of those things that I've known all along. It hasn't changed anything about me or anything I do, but it's the fact that this could happen, and it happened under my watch. I did everything I could, but I was still the attorney who lost this case originally. It's frightening, so I I simply make sure, and I always have, that I do everything I can to prevent this from happening. And as far as the Jewish Book Festival, any of your listeners that come, I promise you, I guarantee you that you will have an enjoyable, I put a presentation together that's a lot of fun, it's entertaining, as well as informative. I promise you you'll enjoy it if you come.
0: I really value the time that you've taken with us. It's been a real treat for us to discuss this and to delve into a lot of the history and the background and to have your expertise. And you were the one that was there. The book is absolutely stunning. Joel, I really appreciate that. Thank you for taking time to talk to us on St. Louis in Tune today.
2: Arnold, Mark, thank you guys so much. I love being here and appreciate you having me. Thank you, sir. You take
0: care. Thank you, Joel. We are glad you decided to listen to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. We know there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and we are glad that you have chosen to listen to us. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.